0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today we're going to be chatting with Dr. Jacob Shapiro, author of The Terrorist Dilemma: Managing Violent Covert Organizations. The book is published by Princeton University Press. Hi Dr. Shapiro and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm delighted to have you here today to talk about The Terrorist Dilemma. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Paul. So we're hoping that, as is the tradition on the channel, you could start off with a little bit about yourself and how you came to study this field.
1: Sure. So uh, I was in the Navy uh, for a period, uh, uh, starting in 1998, and did a little bit of work on counterterrorism after 9-11. And one of the things that really stood out in the work that we did at the time is uh, there was like lots of strife and discontent in the groups we were looking at, and no one had a good explanation as to why that would be the case. And so, you know, this idea that there was kind of lots of conflict within terrorist organizations was in the back of my head when I got to grad school at Stanford uh, in 2003. And so I started doing a bunch of reading on kind of organizational economics and what the issues were managing organizations more broadly. And that work led me to a couple of ideas about why certain things that look odd on the surface uh, might make a lot of sense. Certain things we see in terrorist organizations which look odd on the surface might make a lot of sense. And so that got me started down the path that eventually led to the book, because the more I dug into it, both looking historically and working with colleagues at at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point to declassify documents from Al-Qaeda, the more it became clear that, These organizations had serious managerial problems which were making it impossible in some cases for them to achieve their political goals or at least to do better than they were doing. And so I wanted to understand that process more deeply.
0: Uh, So how did you come to begin work on this particular project, the terrorist dilemma? Did this come out of uh, work at the Combating Terrorism Center exclusively, or how exactly did that begin? Well, so this really began as a dissertation project.
1: So I started writing on the broad topic, um, and then I started writing on, did some writing focusing in on terrorist financing and why it was that so often terrorist groups, which seem to have plenty of resources, looked like they were conducting attacks on the cheap. And one ex one potential explanation for that is the kinds of managerial dilemmas that I talk about in the book. And so the more I wrote on this, the more it resonated with people, and so I turned it into a dissertation. And then the dissertation I turned into a book after I got to Princeton.
0: As you alluded to, the book deals uh not only with this game theoretic analysis of terrorist behavior but you also survey over 100 memoirs from terrorists from a lot of different organizations. Uh, what were some of the methodological issues that you encountered with that approach to your research?
1: Well, so I think the reason that I did the uh, did the analysis of all the autobiographies is there's not a really good systematic way to think about sampling the organizational structure of terrorist groups, right? What we'd like to know generally scientifically in lots of these cases is what happens on average, right? And then once we know what happens on average, we're interested in what's the distribution of outcomes that we see in the world. And so when you think about terrorist groups, if you want to think about what's the distribution of organizational pathologies, that's a really hard question because the groups that tend to get written about in detail such that you can understand what the organizational uh, problems they had were are the groups which conduct a lot of attacks, And so if you just went by, like, where you could find good histories of terrorist groups, you'd end up basically writing about uh, the PLO and the IRA and, to some extent, uh, al-Qaeda. And there's really kind of very little that's systematic on other books. So I I was giving a talk on the project at an early stage uh, at Stanford in 2008, and uh, a colleague of mine from grad school, David Patel, was in the audience, and he said, you know what you should do is you should just read every terrorist memoir that you can find. And that's a principled way to sample the information that's out there in the world on what goes on inside terrorist groups. Um, And I thought this would be a great idea, and I thought it would be great fun to read all of these. And so I started making a list and eventually came up with the list of more than 100 autobiographies that I analyzed for the book. You know, when you think about the methodological challenges in writing these, the biggest one is one that's common anytime you want to use an autobiography or a memoir as a source, which is that people report into these things their best version of themselves. Right. You don't want to write a memoir that exposes all the weaknesses and insecurities and foibles that you have, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: especially if you're writing like the vanity memoir of having been a terrorist, which for most of these people is the most important thing they'll ever do in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, you want to portray things in a positive light. And so what does that mean? It means that kind of systematically, um, as you write the memoir of the time, you laid it all out in the line for some cause, right? You risked kind of death and imprisonment for, for your people or your ethnicity or some set of political principles. Um, you're going to shade the truth in ways that make things look good, right? And so... Um, What that means is that as we read these, we need to treat them with great care. We need to not take them as ground truth or as an honest reflection of what happened, but as the biased uh, version that people would like to have remembered. So when you think about analyzing them, you want to think about what kind of bias is this going to impart. So how are people going to shade the truth? And one thing I feel fairly confident about is they're not going to shade the truth to say, look, we did lots of paperwork and argued a lot, right? they're going to shade the truth to highlight the glorious deeds that they did, mm-hmm. right? or at least they would like to remember themselves doing. And so when we look at them from the perspective of using these things as evidence on organizational pathologies, they're going to under-report problems. Right? So to the extent that we see people who are recounting for You know, in their mind, right, they're recounting for posterity the great deeds that they did. If they pause to mention what a pain in the butt the paperwork that their boss, who they really disliked, made them do, that means that that was probably a huge portion of the experience, right? And so we can kind of take the counts of these things in the memoirs as a real lower bound on how much certain kinds of problems were present
0: that to be one of the really interesting points of the book and that's your assertion that these terrorist groups are far from being alien to our everyday experience of the world they're very familiar from an organizational perspective in terms of the organizations we might go to work at every day Um, how did these terrorist groups really in a practical way look and act like normal business or, or public sector organizations?
1: Well I mean so I think the first thing to say Paul is that they don't all Right, Some of them really do look like the image we have of terrorist groups, Right, small groups of people operating very secretively, using lots of security, limiting communication, and so on. Um, but not all, right? Some groups look very mundane. And so in some way, the, the goal in the book is not just to point out that these mundane groups exist out there. Right? The kind of point of, uh, a key point of the book is to lay out why it is that we see such variation in how terrorist groups are organized, right? And so with that in mind, I think, you know, a key part of the answer to your question is, you know, your question was how do they look like normal groups or normal organizations? I think a key part of the answer to that is uh, basically most ways, right, in some groups, right? So some groups employ... For example, the Islamic State of Iraq, the predecessor to today's Islamic State, they employed uh, very nice spreadsheets to track their personnel every month that had a unique serial number for each fighter, their kunya or nom de guerre, uh, information on the number of dependents in their house, the uh, whether they were married or not, and how many children they had, if they had children, and then other dependents, and how much was paid to them that month. And So that's very normal. You see groups that did things like require people to get receipts or provide receipts when they took resources from their supporting population, right? There are other groups where people had to uh, report in basically on their daily activities so that the leaders could de-conflict multiple cells operating in a given uh, part of a city, right? And so these are all the kinds of mundane little ticky-tack pieces of paperwork that our organizations make us do all the time and that we use when we're trying to organize friends and colleagues to do things. Um, and the terrorists are using them for the, the same reasons we are, which is that it's hard to keep track of what everyone's doing. And if you don't put things down in writing, it's hard for people to do exactly what you want them to do.
0: Absolutely. On that note, later on, you describe an interesting anecdote Mm -hmm. of al-Qaeda operatives, uh, Abu Hafs al-Masri and Abu Qabab, feuding over travel expenses and air conditioner purchases. Uh, What do these situations tell us about what you call preference divergence um, among terrorists? And why does it matter to the overall argument of the book? Well, so I I think
1: what they tell us about preference divergence is that It's quite common and very hard to avoid. So the idea of preference divergence is that you and I might agree on the same goals for our society. But if you like air conditioning and like to be comfortable more than I do, you might want to take a portion of our money as a group and spend it on that as opposed to putting it all towards advancing the political cause. And so we have different preferences over the amount of money that should go towards the cause and you see this all the time in these groups right you see people fighting over uh what targets to attack you see people arguing over which populations to attack you see people arguing over how to spend money uh who to bring in all kind of all dimensions of conflict so when you see something like the dispute between Abu Hass and Abu Kabab you can interpret that two ways right one way is that This is clear evidence of preference divergence, right? They had kind of different beliefs. In that case, Abu Kabab felt he deserved a little bit more physical comfort than Abu Hafs thought he should have. So that's one reading. Another reading is that they disagreed about something else, but one way they could kind of have their fight and Hafs could try and bring Kabab back into line was by accusing him basically of financial impropriety, right? And so... You can't tell from individual transactions, communications like that, which it is, right? Is it that they disagreed over how much personal comfort people should have? Or that this was a way that Haas could try and win in some other conflict? Mm-hmm. But whichever one of those it is, it's clear that these two dedicated terrorists fighting for Al-Qaeda had deeply different preferences over something, and that was causing friction within the group and causing them to communicate in ways that could have been useful to counter terrorists had they intercepted it earlier
0: I'm really interested by this notion that people who are good at conducting violence and therefore make ideal terrorist recruits are going to have an underlying preference for violence and sometimes more so than the very leaders who've recruited them uh, you also point out that once members uh, enter the terrorist underground these individuals come into a self-reinforcing cycle of getting more and more radical. I thought this was a fascinating insight, and I was hoping you could expand on this idea a little bit for us.
1: Exactly. So this is something that um, was really first well-articulated by Jay Boyer Bell, who had spent many years uh, basically hanging out with, with terrorists and trying to understand how they think. And he called this, he called the milieu that people kind of enter when they go into these small hierarchical organization, a small uh, conspiratorial organizations, the dragon world. And his idea was that when you spend all your time in hiding, isolating yourself from society, living in a relatively uh, abstemious way where you're denying yourself lots of pleasures in order to advance a cause and you spend all your time doing that with a small group of other people who are doing the same thing, one of the things that you tend to talk about is the righteousness of your cause and the justifications for what you're doing. And so over time, you naturally come to believe more and more that anything, any action, would be justified in pursuit of the cause. You also come to lose touch with how the things that you're doing will be perceived by people on the outside, and typically, when you bring together a bunch of action-oriented people who've already decided on violence as a way to achieve political goals, and you put them into that setting, they kind of psych each other up right, towards more and more violence. And this is a psychological process that is, was noted as early as uh, 1880 by the people who were forming the first terrorist groups in Russia uh, to fight against the Tsar. And that's portrayed wonderfully in some recent Hollywood movies. So, so for example, the, the terrorist farce Four Lions, which is about a group of hapless, would-be jihadis in the United Kingdom, perfectly portrays how these guys become more and more disconnected from reality the more time they hang out together and kind of talking about the jihad they're going to do and how great it's going to be and how they're going to change the world. Um, so you can think of this as, like, the negative downside of the political engagement process that you see whenever you put groups of motivated young people together in a room it's just this group of young people are have made a choice about how to achieve their political goals that we find deeply reprehensible
0: absolutely Chapter four um, goes on to discuss uh, seized Al Qaeda in Iraq documents, right. including fighters' pledges of allegiance, managerial reports, financial documents—a whole raft of, of items. Yes. What do these tell us about Al Qaeda in Iraq, and how did the data end up measuring up against uh, the book's core assumptions and predictions? So,
1: so that's a that's a great question. So, I think the. The first part of that um, is really, you know, what they tell us. And I think what they tell us is that whenever you need to manage large numbers of people, you need paperwork and you're going to have some bad apples. And so you need paperwork both to keep track of what everyone is doing and also to enable you to identify who the bad apples are. And since the publication of the book, I've started on a project with some folks at the Rand Corporation where we've gotten... About 150 uh, financial documents, uh, additional ones from Al-Qaeda in Iraq and its successor, the Islamic State of Iraq, declassified. And what you see in those is very similar to what you see in these, which is the standard set of management tools being used, right? Um, Accounting spreadsheets, chits for various activities, um, the recording of kind of mundane details that don't seem that important, um, and... Uh, lots and lots of tracking of expenditures right there' are spreadsheets that are um, you know hundreds or even thousands of lines long detailing line by line expenditures on each day uh, for given areas over multi month periods right? and you can imagine what a great boon that is if it 's captured by uh, counter terrorists as the documents we're working with were right? and Um, So there must have been great value in maintaining these documents. So I think the key thing this reveals about the group is as much as it appeared on the outside to be a cohesive, unified organization, it was in fact riven by splits and disagreements over what to do, who to target, how to manage the struggle, and how to spend funds. And one of the ways they tried to deal with that was through record-keeping and bureaucracy – but that introduced massive organizational vulnerabilities. And, you know, it's come out recently and uh, most prominently in General Stanley McChrystal's autobiography, the massive extent to which U.S. and Iraqi and coalition forces in Iraq were able to take advantage of this kind of documentation. Right? One of the things they learned is that when they went out on a raid, in addition to the, the soldiers they had to bring to conduct the raid and kick down the doors and shoot anyone who shot back, They had to bring a bunch of people who could pick up the pen drives, declassify them or crack them if they were password protected, download the information, read what was in them and try and exploit that information quickly, sometimes even that same evening to take like the next link down the chain. And so, you know, when we when we look at these, we in some sense learn just how bad the internal management problems must have been because it wasn't a secret to them that the documents were useful in this way. right? Some of the documents talk about being very careful because coalition forces can exploit them. And so I think what it highlights is just that the, these groups, even that can look very dangerous and very unified from the outside, are often just riven with conflict because of the thing you asked us about, you, you know you, you pointed out earlier, which is that when you recruit people, by promising them this like, glorious fight against the enemy in an irregular organization, which engages in atrocities on a regular basis, you're just not going to get the most disciplined bunch of people. And so you're going to need some tools to keep them in line.
0: Moving a little bit back in time, uh-huh. uh, you focused on Russian terrorist groups in Chapter 6. Sure. And your, your discussion there centered on uncertainty and control in these groups. Um, one thing I found particularly interesting was the hypothesis that when our operatives are going to defect from an organization, they most often do so for a group that's even more extreme than the one that they're leaving. And I thought that this was very pertinent given the ongoing popularity of the Islamic State. And its attraction to a variety of fighters, some of them moving from less extreme organizations, in Syria and elsewhere. I was hoping that you could discuss this pattern as well as any other trends that emerged in your study of these Russian organizations' activities um, in the late 19th century.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. I think the first is that the first thing to say is you know the fascinating thing about the Russian organizations. Uh, operating from you know kind of 1879 to 1883 with Narodnaya Volya and then later on with the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party which was uh Lenin's group and the Party of the Socialist Revolutionaries which was basically the communist group that lost out in the 1917 revolution um is that they recognized all the trade-offs that I'm talking about in the book and in fact when they first start thinking about engaging in terrorism they explicitly debate: Can we organize in ways that are at once sufficiently secret that the Tsar won't uh, track, won't be able to track us down and get us? Um, or uh, are they, you know, can they? So can they operate in ways that are sufficiently um, secretive that the Tsar's secret police won't be able to track them down and stop them? Yet at the same time, allow the political leadership sufficient control of the terrorist apparatus. That the apparatus won't self-reinforce and spin off into doing counterproductive things. And they ultimately decide that, yes, they probably can, and so they set up uh, terrorist organizations. And predictably, some element of those ends up spinning off and doing things that the leadership didn't want. So the first reason to go into these, and the thing I found most fascinating about them, was just how savvy the Russian terrorist leaders were about the managerial dilemmas that they faced. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you, you do have this pattern that's reported during the uh, spasm of terrorism that uh, started during the 1905 revolution and was sustained for four to five years after it, depending on where in Russia you were, is that, yes, individuals did routinely move to more extreme groups. Uh, and this is something that Anna Geifman has wonderfully kind of documented, and she has uh, a psychological explanation for it that I think is reasonable – Um, which which goes to this reinforcement idea. And it's basically that the more you engage in terrorism and the more time you spend hanging out with other terrorists in secretive underground settings, the less time you spend talking to normal people, the more extreme your political views become. And so over time, you seek out groups that will let you engage in more extreme activities. That process leads to the second interesting thing you see in the Russian case study, which you don't see that many other places, uh, and that's the flexibility of the justification for the use of violence among terrorist leaders. So one of the really interesting things that happens over the course of 1905 in that conflict is that Lenin and uh, the Social Democrats switch from a policy in which they basically said, we can't engage in terrorism, it will be counterproductive, it's not right; the right way to go, to a wholehearted embrace of terrorism. One of the main reasons they do that is they kept losing members and potential fighters to the party of the socialist revolutionaries who were allowing people to engage in terrorism, right? So the politics of maintaining people inside the group caused them to shift away from what they thought might be politically optimal outside the group, and in a way that led them to engage in more terrorism, even though they didn't really think it was the right thing to do politically at the time.
0: Chapter 7 addresses discrimination and control in Republican and Loyalist terrorist groups in Ireland during the 20th century. What was the dynamic here between the terrorist leadership and their foot soldiers in terms of their target preferences and in terms of the organizational controls at play here? So that's a great question. I think,
1: you know, when we think about the variety of organizational structures that we see in terrorist groups, we want to think about concepts that will help us separate groups along uh, dimensions where we can kind of all agree this group is more or less of something, and that will generate predictions about how they're going to organize. And so in the book, what I do is lay out uh, three dimensions that I think will be important, right? How hard is it to know what targets you should hit uh, without direct evidence from, without direct uh, input from leadership, right? Right? How important is it to hit the right targets and not the wrong targets? And how different are the preferences of the members over what targets to hit going to be than over the leaders? And so in Russia, you have kind of very clear distinctions along along the dimension of how hard is it to know what to do in the absence of leadership direction. Um, in Northern Ireland, you have variation along a different dimension, which is how bad is it to hit the wrong targets? Right? And this goes back to politically, what are the groups trying to do? Right, so the provisional IRA, the uh, nationalist side in Northern Ireland, right, the side that was pushing for Northern Ireland to separate from the United Kingdom, their perspective, their use of violence needed to be fairly careful. Right? They needed to convince the people of the United Kingdom that it was going to be too costly to hold on to Northern Ireland, but they needed to do so without engaging in so much violence Against uh, loyalists in Northern Ireland, that the people of Great Britain or the people of Britain would look at the situation and say, "My God, we cannot leave our countrymen to the tender mercies of those Catholic terrorists." Right? They needed to avoid that, and so they had to choose just the right level of violence such that they raised the cost high enough that Britain would want to allow uh, Ireland to Northern Ireland to separate but not so high that the prospect of doing so would mean abandoning uh, their fellow citizens to a, a politically unstable future. And so that required great care in the use of violence. The loyalist side, right, the groups that were trying to engage in terrorism to make sure that Northern Ireland remained part of Great Britain, in some sense they had a much easier task, right? They simply needed to do, their goal for using violence was twofold. They wanted to convince people in the in Britain that they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. So any action would meet that criteria. And they wanted to deter Catholic or sorry rather, they wanted to deter the Irish Republican Army from engaging in terrorism against loyalist targets. And for that, they had a deterrence model in mind, which basically meant that after any attack they would hit back in in a way that was relatively undirected, such that the costs of engaging in terrorism on the nationalist side were raised. Excuse me for a sec. (coughs) So because of this difference in discrimination, right? the IRA needed to be careful and the loyalist paramilitaries did not, there was a different value for the two groups in implementing hierarchical structures. And so the provisional IRA... Uh, developed a number of systems, including an internal disciplinary wing, to try and make sure that everyone was under a clear chain of command and that people used violence in ways that were acceptable to the leadership. On the loyalist side, it was much more loose. Right? The, the main loyalist paramilitary, the largest one, uh, the UDA, was basically organized around a series of local units each of which collected dues from their members and then kicked up a portion of those dues to the next higher level in the hierarchy. And so in some sense, it was kind of like a membership club right? whose local uh, units would periodically engage in terrorist activities. And so that organization was appropriate for a group that didn't need to be too careful about how violence was used, it would never have worked for the ira where you needed to make sure that hot-headed young members didn't engage in things that would uh, reinforce for the population of britain the impossibility of ever allowing a substantial member of it measure of
0: independence to northern ireland to the middle east um, in chapter eight you go back to this concept of preference divergence as it relates to secular and Islamist militants in the Palestinian territories. Uh, What insights did you find there in terms of the contrast between Hamas and Fatah?
1: So I think there are two things that are instructive from this case study. Um, The first is, I think, you know, my favorite terrorist quote, I think of all time, comes from this case study. Uh, And this is this quote uh, by the former by the alleged leader of Black September, the man who allegedly planned the Munich Olympic attacks in 1968. And in his autobiography, which is remarkably frank, he talks about the challenges that Fatah had with people who were uh, plants for Jordanian intelligence during the war against Jordan in in the early 1970s, right? The the Fatah and the PLO basically... Uh, fought a war against the Jordanian state and were eventually kicked out of Jordan. And in his autobiography, he tells about the time that a major arms cache was compromised, and they did an internal investigation to find out who did it. And they found out that it was two members who had passed themselves off as fanatical extremists. And he says in his autobiography uh, that this confirmed his belief that extremists were either imbeciles or traitors. Because no, or sorry, that true fanatics were either imbeciles or traitors. And what was interesting about that is it reflects a deep problem in how you screen for members who believe the same things as the leadership does, which is that if what you ask for is the most extreme members possible, that's a fairly easy thing for people who are working for intelligence communities to fake. And it's a fairly easy thing for people to think in general, right? They can spout extreme political views fairly easily. And so you need other ways of making sure that the people who come into your group are the kinds of people you want. That's the first thing that's interesting in that case. The second thing that I think is really interesting in that case is that Fatah and Hamas had very different populations that they were trying to draw into the group. And that led to very different organizational challenges, so FATA was an organization that was operating mostly in exile, very diverse population from across the Palestinian diaspora, and they didn't have uh, a stable base in one place in the world for long periods of time, right? They were in Jordan, then they were kicked out and had to go to Beirut, Beirut then they were kicked out and had to go to Tunis, and so they were moving around a lot, right? and so they didn't have the ability to establish a place where they could recruit for the long term from a single population, get to know people from the time they were young, and then bring them in, right? They had to kind of bring in a very diverse group of people. So that meant that they brought in a group of people with very diverse preferences and had the resulting problems in managing them. Hamas, on the other hand, established this social service provision infrastructure early on that it used as a way of vetting people who are coming into the organization. So you could make sure that people had been participating in youth activities and contributing charitable time and things like that. And you could also, through these institutions, get to know their families and the larger kind of um, society from which they hailed. And that just wasn't possible for a diaspora organization like FATA. And so what that meant is Hamas was able to bring in people from the start, whose interests and preferences were more aligned with those of the organization, right? And so they had many fewer managerial problems than Fata did. Now, this didn't mean that they had none, and in fact, one of the key bombings that people look back on now in 1994 and think of as basically being the point at which the Oslo peace process started to unravel. Appears to have been a bombing that was not sanctioned by the group's political leadership, right? And that was, in fact, done because the local cell felt it needed to be done. And so they took action on their own, on their own kind of cognizance without getting approval from higher-ups. But in general, that was an aberration in Hamas, right? For the most part, Hamas shows very few signs of disagreement within the group. And what it looks like in that case study is that's because they were able to recruit a group of people who are more unified around the cause to begin with, and so they just had less preference divergence. They had less need to manage people.
0: You conclude the book by stressing that terror groups suffer the same bureaucratic constraints as any other human organization and are therefore governed by certain key trade-offs in all the choices they make. What were some of the policy recommendations that stemmed from your findings?
1: So I think the, the, biggest, the biggest one is to keep these organizations in perspective, right? As you're seeing uh, with the Islamic State and as you've seen with lots, lots of other groups historically, the bigger they get, the more fighters they bring in and the more activities they try to do, the more of a signal that they create for uh, counterterrorists and others who are trying to suppress their activities, and so there's an inherent limitation to this mode of organization, right? The bigger you get, the easier you are to find. And these are organizations whose who once found are extremely vulnerable, right? They don't have the capacity that states have to exclude people from their territory, either through international law or through kind of conventional military forces. So the first and I think most important lesson is – the necessity of this bureaucratization places an inherent limit on what these groups can accomplish if they're facing competent, uh, opposition. So that's, I think, I think the most important, I think the second most important is against these organizations. We often struggle to think about measures of effectiveness, right? We struggle to think about, are we doing things that are making it harder for the groups to operate? And this is particularly hard because in some organizations, One of the things that happens when you make it harder for leaders to control the group is you get higher levels of violence. This seems to have happened in the occupied territories during the second Intifada. As Israel cracked down, it became very hard for terrorist organizations to manage their fighters and rein them in if they had wanted to do so. And so I propose that there's an alternative thing you can look at as a measure of how you're doing, which is to what extent is the group trying to exercise control of its members? And if you see an organization that's giving up control that it clearly values over its members because at one point in time it accepted the security risks inherent in exercising control over people, then that should be a sign that you're putting the group under pressure and in some sense you're succeeding. And so what you want to do is bring these two kinds of measures together, right? How much are they doing and how hard does it seem like you've made it for them to operate? I think when you start to look at things more syncretically like that, you're going to get a more credible, more realistic portrait of where groups are going and what their potential is.
0: It's been a fascinating discussion. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we were hoping that you might give us a preview What's next for you? Any upcoming projects? For sure. So
1: the thing that will be coming out soon is this analysis of the Islamic State of Iraq's finances and management. And the motivation for this work is that um, if you look at today's Islamic State, uh, you know, ISIS, ISIL, the Islamic State, whatever you want to call it, there's really a very direct line of descent from al-Qaeda in Iraq through the Islamic State of Iraq to today's Islamic State. And the group, uh, the group's organizational documents reveal a tremendous amount about it and about how it worked and how it operated and what its vulnerabilities are. And to the extent that you believe today's ISIS is the descendant of the Islamic State of Iraq, then looking at ISI documents and how it was managed will tell you a lot about the potential of the Islamic State today. And so when we look at these documents, a number of interesting things come up. So one is that the, the line of dissent is quite clear. So the current leader of the Islamic State, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, shows up in 2009 personnel spreadsheets as Abu Dua, uh, which was his nom de guerre at the time, as do five other people who are allegedly on his leadership council today. So a big chunk of the leadership of the Islamic State shows up in the payroll spreadsheets of the Islamic State of Iraq in 2009 in Mosul, uh, in Northern Iraq. So that's just kind of, that continuity is quite interesting. I think the second thing you realize in the, in looking at the documents is these hierarchical structures are actually, can be quite robust. So the Islamic state of Iraq took an absolute hammering from mid 2006 through mid 2009 when it basically went underground. And we have, at one point in time, personnel spreadsheets that seem to be more or less complete for Mosul, uh, about 14 months apart. And the depending on how you count, the proportion of the people present in the group in 2007, either as active fighters or as people whose families are receiving payments after their death or detention, uh, so the portion of those people who remain on the payroll in 2009 is between about 24 and 14%. So that's a 76 to 80 sorry 74 to 86% departure rate in a 14 month period. Now, you think about that in the context of the organizations we work in. Imagine if 84% of the people you work with every day were gone 14 months from now. Could your organization survive? Hmm. I don't know, but they could. And we're able to basically go underground. And when political opportunity presented itself, we're able to come roaring back. And so what I think that tells you is that when you think about these conflicts, you can do an awful lot to degrade and uh, deter and attrite terrorist organizations. Uh, But if they're well organized, uh, at the end of the day... If you don't address the underlying political problems, there's a chance they're going to come back. And and so when we think about policy for today in Iraq, one of the most important lessons of looking in great detail at the financial documents of the Islamic State of Iraq and viewing them through this organizational lens is something that's almost not about the organization at all. It's that if you don't address the underlying political grievances, you're unlikely to get a long-run solution. And so... In some way, I think through looking at the minutiae where we've been kind of forced back to the big macro level issue and the big macro level political issues, because it's clear that you can beat on the beat on the groups as much as any terrorist group has ever been beaten on. And
0: if you don't address the political, they can come back. I thank you very much for joining us today on New Books and National Security, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you very much, Paul. This was great fun.